You're listening to a press conference from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health with Sarah Fortune, the John Laporte Given Professor and Chair of the Department of Immunology and Infectious Diseases. This call was recorded at 11.30 a.m. Eastern Time on Thursday, March 26th. Good morning. Uh, I'm Sarah Fortune. I am the Chair of the Department of Immunology and Infectious Diseases at the School of Public Health. And... um, I am happy to be here this morning to answer your questions. I thought I would begin with a sort of four-minute introduction, both of myself and then to give you an idea of what I've been thinking about recently. Uh, and I promise this is going to end up on uh, COVID and COVID, uh, uh, where we are in terms of COVID control locally. But the, reason I, the place I'd like to start is actually my area of expertise. I studied tuberculosis, and I've spent my career studying the intersection of the biology, the interventions for tuberculosis, and global health systems. And um, as some of you might know, TB is actually the leading cause of infectious deaths in the world. Uh, There are a million people who die of TB every year, and I think we all have a better sense of what that looks like in the setting of this COVID epidemic. And Tuesday was World TB Day. Normally, we um, spend that day both celebrating our accomplishments and looking forward to what we need to do. Uh, But this World TB Day was marked by virtual meetings trying to understand the impact of COVID on TB control. And uh, in one of those virtual meetings, I uh, had the opportunity to hear from a a journalist, actually, Vidya Krishnan in India, who had spent her career documenting the fragility of the Indian health system and its inability to take care of uh, TB patients in India. And as you know, I think India is the second most populous country in the world. It has the largest burden of TB cases in the world, so about a third of the 10 million cases every year. Um, and it is a, its burden of TB is a very good metric for the fragility of its health system. And so Vidya both doc- describes the terrible plight of TB cases in India, um, but also the state of COVID control in India. So they report only about 700 cases, but they basically have tested no one. They have no PPE, they have no medical infrastructure, and they have an increasingly frayed social fabric in her description where doctors are being uh, evicted from their homes because there's a concern that they are vectors of contagion. And so listening to her really quite dire reports from India, I was reminded that this tsunami that is facing us all is facing, is coming to countries with really very fragile health systems that have very little uh, capacity for dealing with it. And that, um, and that really the limits, the limits of what we can achieve, even locally in terms of COVID control, are set by the globally set by the weakest healthcare systems globally. And so when you think about what we're trying to do with something like social distancing, um, I think it's appealing to think about the Chinese model where China was exceptionally successful in using quarantine and social distancing to sort of drive the genie back into the bottle. But I think we have to be honest that the genie's out of the bottle and globally we're using these tools just as everybody understands flatten the curve but really probably not bend the curve back to zero. And so as I was kind of entertaining these 
uh, Dark Thoughts on Tuesday. Um, there's a paper by Yamatan Grad, who's a junior faculty in the Department of Immunology and Infectious Disease. It's Kistler et al. And it's, I, it's on the preprint servers, which I highly recommend you look for. Um, but it provides a roadmap for thinking about how we can um, flatten the curve, but we are going to have to but let the epidemic play out in such a way that we do achieve enough herd immunity to protect us against uh, catastrophic recurrences of the epidemic. And so he proposed a model in which you basically tune social distancing and interventions to tune the, to the capacity of the healthcare system in order to base, to try to save as many lives as possible while preventing the subsequent waves of epidemic transmission. And I found this, um, uh, and this really just depends on four things. Medical capacity, which is PPE, beds and ventilators, and tests. And so I want to end the introduction with a really optimistic numbers from the state of Massachusetts in terms of testing, because you've all heard about the limitations of testing capacity. And in the state of Massachusetts, yesterday they are between, on the 25th of um, March, uh, we performed 6,000 tests. So our testing capacity has gone up from about 250 tests a day to 2,000 tests a day to 4,000 tests a day. So now we're performing 6,000 tests a day, and I believe by the end of the week there's an estimate that we will be at 8,000 to 10,000 tests a day. So uh, I think there's a glimmer of hope in terms of the testing capacity coming online to be able to uh, let the epidemic play in a controlled fashion uh, uh, and hopefully um, save as many lives as possible. Okay, so I'm happy to take questions based on that. We do have our first question. Uh, hi, uh, Professor Fortune. Um, I just want to make sure I understand you right, and, and you know this is a potentially important message for the public to get, that the, the point of everything we're doing now is really not to avoid getting infected entirely uh, because that wouldn't do anything to raise uh, herd immunity eventually and put an end to this, but to manage it in a way that um, that as many lives are saved as possible. Is that right? I, I believe that that is the most realistic path forward. I believe that there has been some vacillation in, um, in domestic policy settings trying to understand whether we could achieve what China achieved, which was not just flattening the curve, but really driving it back to zero. So putting the, as I like to think of it, putting the genie back into the bottle, or whether that is functionally, now that it is a global epidemic, functionally impossible, and what we're trying to do is control it in such a way as we can save as many lives as possible. And I believe it is the latter, which is the most realistic path forward now. And is it likely when we look at uh, places like Africa and India where, at least from a testing standpoint, we don't know what the real case is, um, it, it looks like the epidemic is sort of arriving and starting to grow. Um, is there, do you have a sense that even here in the U.S. we will see separate waves that, you know, regardless of what happens over the next four months with social distancing and everything else, that um, – 
that, you know, a year from now or, or 18 months from now, absent a vaccine, of course, you know, that we'll be dealing with this again, or, or is it impossible to tell? Um, so absent a vaccine, I think it is clear that we are going to be dealing with separate waves. Now, what the time scale of those waves are will be is not entirely clear, but um, when people talk about the transmission of the virus, Obviously, transmission is both dependent on the number of cases in your community, but also the density of your community. And so the way a wave rolls through your community depends on local factors. And we can, you can intuit that now because you understand what's happening in New York versus uh, Wyoming. And so the, the progression of those um, of transmission is going to look different in different communities based on density. And I think that actually as a separate thought, there could be a much more coordinated federal distribution of resources if we understood that um, resources need to be distributed based on, on the different density-dependent temporal factors um, that are going to make the burden hit at different communities at different times. Thank you. Next question. Hi. Um, you know, ski resorts, national parks, the Disney resorts, those are all draws for people around the country and around the world. Yeah. That means that there's a lot of social mixing that happens in them. Um, yet a lot yeah. of these places did not close down until late into this crisis. Yeah, I'm in Colorado. I'm thinking in particular of our ski resorts. They didn't close until March 15th, after, um, which was, you know, well after Colorado began uh, tracking cases, confirmed cases. Um, and after ski yeah. towns themselves had started to have outbreaks. Was that a mistake to wait so long to close these places down? Um, you know, I don't want to really second-guess anybody in this because I'm not sure that second-guessing helps moving forward. And I think um, I think I actually, I think at a point in time when we thought we could eliminate the virus, eliminate transmission and rid it from our communities, like China functionally did, um, then the earliest, you know, shutting down at the earliest moment possible would have been the ideal. But um, given that the virus has taken hold in our community, I think um, we're going to have to accept that we're not going to be able to rid our communities of the virus, and therefore um, the discussion should turn to how can we kind of have moderate and sustainable social distancing to slow it, but not expect that we're going to eliminate it, mm -hmm. um, such that we can save lives, right, but that the ski resorts are, you know, or but communities will be able to function at, uh, at some level. In an ideal world, it would be sort of moderate and tunable social distancing. All right, thank you. Yeah. Next question. Hi. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about serological testing and how this could help us better yeah. understand the epidemic and yeah. if there are any other yeah. countries that have that capacity. Um, and then I was also wondering about mitigation strategies. Um, some advisors, sure. particularly here in France, the scientific advisors have said it would last at least six weeks. Are there um, good estimates? Uh, do most epidemiologists believe it's going to be a matter of months, not weeks? Thank you. So let me speak to your first question about serologic testing because that is extremely important. 
So as you know, the sort of nose swab testing is looking for live virus or virus in your mucosa right now, and it tells you if you're acutely carrying coronavirus, but it doesn't tell you if you've had it or not. And serologic testing is a way to tell you whether you've had it and, in theory, have immunity to it. And it is the important part about serologic testing is it's much, 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 much easier to deploy. And you can think about a sort of pregnancy test-like deployment of it. Um, serologic testing is being deployed in China. Uh, and there are other serologic tests I'm sure that you have heard that the UK promises, you know, to roll out serologic testing on a large scale. Um, and I don't know the quality of those tests yet. Um, but I think it's going to be an important way to try to understand where we are in the epidemic as we as it rolls forward because it helps us understand um, in a much more feasible fashion uh, how we're doing and whether we're allowing enough progression that we are getting enough herd immunity that we're protecting the we're moving towards a protected population. So that's the first thing. So serologic testing is critical, and at least in the United States. It is disappointing that it is also appears to be lagging behind testing that has been available in China. Um, and the second point is, is it weeks not, or is it months not weeks? And I think um, uh, it's obviously going to depend on um, local factors and where you are in the epidemic. I suspect that France is not, um, not over the hump in terms of the epidemic, and therefore, but something like a serologic test would elucidate that. And if you knew where you were in the epidemic, you'd have a much better sense of whether it's going to be weeks or months. Um, in the United States, it's clearly where we're clearly not over the hump. Uh, it's clearly going to be months, not weeks. Great, thank you. Yeah. Next question. Uh, hi. Um, a couple of questions. One is, could you give the name of the first author of that paper you mentioned um, about the roadmap for flattening the curve? Second, what do we know about common cold coronavirus infections? Do they return every year, like the flu and the swallows to Capistrano? And also, um, when you're saying we need herd immunity, I mean, how do you encourage that while encourage everyone to socially isolate? Is it just going to be a side effect of people, not everybody doing what they're told? Thanks. Yeah. So let me um, let me answer the first and third question and then the coronavirus question. Okay. So the author is Kissler, K-I-S-S-L-E-R. He's the first author. And the last author is Grad, G-R-A-D. In this paper, essentially what they propose is moderate social distancing. So um, not extreme social distancing, but once we're medically, all our infrastructure and our critical care resources are all in place, moderate social distancing, expecting that people are going to get infected. Some people are going to get sick and some people are going to die. We need to save as many people as we can and limit transmission such as that as few people as possible get sick uh, in order, but people have to get infected in order to get herd immunity. And I guess that's the roadmap they propose. So a roadmap where you do allow a little, uh, you, um, 
You do, when you're ready, when your health system is ready, you do allow moderate, moderation of social distancing, expecting that you're going to release transmission in order to build herd immunity such that you don't, at a later date, have this cataclysmic pandemic again, or, you know, epidemic transmission again. Oh, and then the uh, seasonal coronaviruses. Yeah. You know, there are lots of these seasonal coronaviruses, and um, I don't know enough about the transmission of individual seasonal coronaviruses to be able to speak to that uh, very authoritatively. Any suggestions of coronavirus experts? Uh, Ralph Barrick, B-A-R-I-C, at the University of North oh, yeah. Carolina. Yeah. Okay, thank you. We have our next question. Hello, here is a journalist from China, and I want to yeah. ask the question about the uh, symptomatic infections. It is said that the data on invisible infections is an important indicator of future decision-making, and whether the uh, COVID-19 will make a comeback and how to respond if it does. How do you think about it? In yes. China in particular? Uh, no, no, around the world. Um, so, okay, so um, to parse that into a couple pieces, clearly one of the challenges about COVID and COVID transmission is the relatively high proportion of people who are asymptomatically in, asymptomatic when infected and capable of transmission. And I, as I'm sure you know, um, estimates suggest that about 40% of transmission is asymptomatic. Um, uh, and it is very hard. A nimble public health system will be able to try to track based on the appearance of symptoms back to asymptomatic carriers, but that is very challenging. And I guess that's, um, that is yet another reason why I think it is probably in the absence of something like the incredibly heroic effort that was undertaken in China to track down asymptomatic carriers, which I do not think less robust healthcare systems are going to be able to do. I do think transmission is going to continue and that the epidemic is going to play out through the world. Um, and, the, uh, and just mathematically, this is in sort of a data, a quantitative estimate. So in the Kistler paper, they estimated that sort of bringing transmission down by about 40 to about 40% of um, unrestrained transmission would really significantly improve our ability to, at least in domestically, um, uh, take care of people. That's yeah. basically capturing all the symptomatic transmission. And so we would have to do a really good job of capturing all the symptomatic transmission. And and then accept that there is asymptomatic transmission. Okay, so what can we uh, do about it? What, what will uh, come next? What will come next? Yeah. Uh, you're asking, I, you know, um, you're asking me to prognosticate. <laughs> um, I don't know what's going to come next because it's going to depend on the, uh, it's going to depend on the, actions of the healthcare systems around the world. I do fear, however, that where healthcare systems are very fragile, that what's gonna come next is actually um, 
the pandemic playing out in a really catastrophic way. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. Next question. Hi, Professor Thompson. I would like to ask you whether the promise of chloroquine is real or not. Or is there, is, if there is any other promise for any antiviral uh, medicine that could come far uh, in a short time before the vaccination? Um, that, those are excellent questions, and the honest answer is I don't know. The data on chloroquine is really very preliminary, uh, uh, very preliminary data where there is effect in experimental systems, effectiveness in experimental systems, and um, I do not know of any data suggesting that there is market uh, uh, showing an effect in clinical settings. That said, I think that chloroquine, if it were effective, and I don't know that it would be, I think what could, one could expect is a modest um, antiviral activity, but that a modest antiviral activity might allow prophylaxis, like exposure to prophylaxis and the buffering of transmission chains, um, uh, which might have an impact on transmission and might mitigate clinical severity, although it's probably unlikely to, you know, um, markedly improve the outcome in people who do become very sick. Uh, so uh, I think that there are some... Mm. Therapies directed at um, the immune response, the destructive immune response, which are likely to have uh, clinical efficacy in terms of saving people's lives if they're very sick, but only a very few people are going to get access to those. And the same, honestly, is true for something like remdesivir, which is the Gilead antiviral, but which is intravenous. So the world of vaccine would be... The, the best. Oh, and I do want to emphasize chloroquine is very toxic, so should, people should not just go out and randomly take chloroquine. Yes. Thank yeah. you. Thank you so yeah. much. Okay, next question. I'm wondering if, to, to go to your point about how <clears throat> these uh, these waves are going to be moving kind of through various um, states and local municipalities and managing those death tolls related to, you know, surges past hospital capacity are happening in this very local context. What role do these kind of various national and state-level epidemiological models that we're seeing being published um, in the last, you know, few days and few weeks, like what role do those models have to play in shaping local um, policies regarding physical distancing and managing the surge? Um. I think those models are very important. I think local models are very important because I think that actually in an ideal world, and I'm not saying we live in an ideal uh, uh, in an ideal world in terms of the U.S. public health system, um, but in an ideal world, um, managing um, interventions like social distancing would be driven by local data and driven by local hospital capacity and there would be um, a sort of ability to respond very locally to the epidemic, recognizing that the epidemic in New York is not the same as the epidemic in rural Ohio right now, and that maybe the social distancing um, strictures 
could be tuned to your domestic conditions. Um, and again, New York in August might actually be at a much different place than uh, Denver in August, right? Where New York might have gone through a wave much earlier and Denver might be in a different position. And so the ability to have local models, but it would be ideal if those could feed into a coordinated federal response. And of course that is very um, distrustingly absent at this point. Thank you. Yeah. We have our next question. Uh, how professor and experts experimental results affect the government's strategy? Does U.S., for example, does it work? And can you tell us more about it? Yeah. Um, does the government strategy? Okay, I think I might be skating off into uh, uh, an area where I don't have an expertise that I should really be commenting, except to say that I think that um, the U.S. government needs to move to a, a coordinated federal strategy. Right now we're seeing state-by-state -state strategies, and it would be um, ideal if we moved to a coordinated federal strategy on uh, managing how we're going to manage um, transmission and if there were a unified message. Um, but I think I should just leave that at that. Okay. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. We do have a question. I was just wondering, um, when we say that it's going to be 12 to 18 months for a vaccine, um, has that ever happened before? That would be incredibly fast, no? It would be incredibly fast. And I think that um, people should be cautious about, about what their expectations are in terms of the vaccine. So um, it's one thing to develop a vaccine that works or it works in a small group of people. Uh, then it has to work in a larger group of people. And then it has to be made, manufactured at a scale where it can be distributed to millions of people. And um, those are... Um, uh, the idea that that can be accomplished in 12, 18 months, I know people are working very hard to do that, but it should be recognized that those are very ambitious goals and that have not been achieved, except we do make a whole lot of seasonal influenza vaccine every year, so it's not impossible. Thank you, David. Yeah. Okay, one more question. And then I'll one more question. Yeah, hello. I want to ask, uh, uh, can you tell us more about the antibody study? What does it contribute to the study of a vaccine? Um, uh, they are very, antibody studies are very important in understanding of the potential for vaccine-mediated immunity because most of our effective vaccines at least correlate with the titers of neutralizing antibodies. And so there have been passive transfers of sera that suggest that the antibodies are protective, and I think that they, those studies, albeit preliminary, are, uh, are optimistic in terms of the informing our understanding of how hard or easy it will be to develop a vaccine. Okay, thank you. This concludes the March 26th press conference.